This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the Block Hash Podcast. Cool. What's up, dude? Hey, not too much. Just put the baby away for nap time. <laughs> nice. Nice. Uh, how's the weather, too? Like, it's... Aren't you guys heading into winter? Yeah, it's cooperating for the most part right now, which is nice, but we're expecting the rains to come before too long. Yeah, we're kind of in that point where we're coming out of winter, but we have a bunch of rain pouring down on us, so I kind of understand the feeling. Um, but I shit, I would love to go skiing down there. Like, When's the best time to go skiing in Chile? Not sure if you're a skier or not, but... Yeah, the winter, I mean... It's generally pretty good. Uh, you got to go up the mountain a bit. Like we don't actually get any snow down here in Valdivia by the coast, but right. it's a very long, narrow country. So it's it, it's always easy to get to the coast or the mountains, depending on what you prefer at any given time. So yeah, there's several ski resorts not too far from here. I'm talking like two yeah. or three, three hour drive, maybe, I guess, to get to one that's pretty decent. And they're not just mountains either; they're volcanoes. So you have the option to have those nice, oh, that's graduated slopes. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's like a two and a half, three hour drive to get from where I'm in Central Oregon to Portland, anyways. And I make that drive all the time. So yeah, that's yeah. feasible. I'll need to I'll need to look at those logistics when, yeah, whenever sure. I figure out coming down. Yeah, and for people that are just visiting and they don't want to go through the hassle of getting cars and stuff, I mean, the buses are very well connected and very reliable, and it's easy to just get to wherever you need to go that way too. Right, right. Yeah, so but before we jump in, did you see all the um, the hype in crypto this week and the, the prices jump? I just saw the big price jump, yeah. Yeah, I think Bitcoin had its highest 24-hour volume ever. I, I think I saw it get over $22 billion in trade volume. I don't know if some of that's a wash or if, or what's going on with some of that, but it's pretty crazy. Yeah, I, I gave up trying to figure it out a long time ago. There's just <laughs> there's there's so many people with so many vested interests in fucking with the numbers at this point that it's like right. you know trying to keep track of it or stay on top of it is just basically pointless i know it's it's a headache i i don't follow it too closely in terms of the technicals and stuff like that i just invest medium to long term and things like that but it was crazy people were freaking out and like oh my god bitcoin's (laughs) up fifteen hundred dollars in a day i'm like dude i've seen it move a lot faster in a lot shorter period of time but yeah it's when you go through a long quote-unquote crypto winter and then you see a jump like that yeah it's exciting but yeah you said it was dead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think the Fed wire system actually in the U.S. went offline on the same day. SEC, really? um, yeah, it was really weird. SEC uh, issued a no action letter for uh, ICOs and tokens, which is really, really interesting. Yeah, some weird stuff that came out like the same day and the day after all that happened this week. It's been a wild ride. 
Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm just waiting for them to finally like crack down on that stuff for reals. Right. Yeah, it's going to happen at some point. My my theory is that with all these blockchains coming out and the lack of regulations at least in the US cuz it's going to vary everywhere, obviously mm. around the world, but in the US a lot of projects are going to get hammered with some of these regulations and some of them will be able to meet those standards and some of them won't. Right. So, I'm very interested to see if the if Congress is lenient with it mm-hmm. or if they're going to come in and hammer it. So yeah. I don't know. It's open game right now. I think a lot of the, like even the c- conventional hedge fund managers and such, they like to use crypto for their own purposes, even if they don't offer them as part of their packages to their clients. So maybe just like having the right people invested themselves, you know, might help to hold things off a bit. I don't know, but it's, it always seems to explode with one particular case, you know, like one use case that they can point at is, oh, see, this is why we need regulation to prevent this. Right, exactly. And the first big one I saw was the ICOs back in 17. Yeah. And then you saw it again with the futures contracts at the end of mm-hmm. 17. And um, I think you're going to start seeing that with dApps and you might start seeing it with some legislation yeah. pretty soon. Yeah. Um, but it's just another cycle. They just have a really hard time wrapping their own heads around it, let alone trying to explain it to somebody. And like if anyone was ever called before Congress or the Senate or something to try to explain this, none of them would understand. Like well, not even close. It's not like they can yeah, it's not <laughs> like they can call Satoshi Nakamoto before the Senate and you know, right. I, they would get but so many anybody. ratings if they could call Vitalik or someone like that. Like Oh yeah. But like oh even goodness, if they called from someone from like Goldman Sachs or something and said like explain this shit yeah but they, they need someone in the industry oh Goldman knows nothing they don't very little and they they try and hire people that understand it but yeah they they have people on their payroll that do get it but those right. people can't explain it to a fucking congressman <laughs> no of course not <laughs> yeah they they would have to bring in someone in the industry that's willing to put up with all of it and i really doubt there's many people that would want to go and talk before congress and right with all of it being decentralized i mean who are you going to bring up there and say is responsible so mm-hmm. it's not like facebook or anything so well you i don't know even sure. facebook we saw what happened when mark zuckerberg testified like nobody that was grilling him understood a word he was saying <laughs> oh no oh my my goodness that was so funny to watch i don't know if you remember or not but what, <laughs> oh yeah one of the senators um was asking him questions on how they make their money. And right. I even know this. And I know this just from watching a movie too. I um, know it because I use it and it's it's wonderful. <laughs> I know. I use it all the time too. But these old guys in Congress and old gals, yeah. and they were right. asking him questions about how does Facebook make their money? And they're making it out to seem like this sketchy thing. And right. there's this awesome they quote even where do... Zuck... Yeah, this yeah. awesome quote where Zuckerberg leans into the mic. And he's like, Senator, we run ads. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It was, it was just like so mind-boggling. Like, how do you not wrap your head around? Well, that? and that that shows you just how how little the senators even took it seriously because they couldn't be bothered to even put any time in whatsoever to research their fucking subject. Like, they could have even just watched the movie for fuck's sake. I mean, <laughs> if they watched the movie, they would have been more prepared than they were actually going into it. It was kind of oh, embarrassing. Sure. <laughs> yeah. But 
It was funny. They had him on a boosted seat too. Yeah, <laughs> we just saw I some saw of those that. pictures. It was pretty funny. That was adorable. <laughs> I don't know if it was a you're a short person joke or if it was you need to sit mm-hmm. up higher. <laughs> it was just funny. Right. Well, they probably had the cameras set up ahead of time. Yeah. And then when he sat down, he wasn't in the frame properly or something. So, I don't know. Yeah, it was probably all angles, but from the picture yeah. that they showed on I think I saw it on Twitter. It was just funny. Like, why are you putting yep. him in a booster seat? <laughs> yeah, but before we jump into Fort Galt, why don't you give a little bit of uh, detail on who uh, who, be, who you are, your background, some stuff you've done, uh, so the audience kind of has an idea of uh, who you are. Yeah, sure. Um, let's see, back in 2013, I guess, is when I saw the Bitcoin craze really starting to become something that the masses could get involved with. I guess I first kind of started sticking my fingers in back in 2011 or so and at that time it was just a bunch of my nerd friends talking in coffee shops and stuff about this thing that wasn't really usable by the average person so I didn't you know I wasn't convinced at that time that it was actually going to go anywhere it was an interesting concept and project and whatever but I figured you know what let's just wait and see what happens with this and sure enough a couple of years passed and the blockchain.info wallet came out for Android and that's when I knew it was time to pop so that's when I jumped in with both feet and I got together with some friends of mine they had started the Bitcoin co-op in Vancouver so we spent basically the, the year you know pounding the pavement getting businesses on board to accept Bitcoin and we got that town basically to where you could live completely on Bitcoin except for paying taxes, you know, <laughs> but we had restaurants and coffee shops and even grocery stores and stuff too that were all accepting Bitcoin all in that one year. So it was an exciting time and I got into mining at that time too, got the biggest, baddest ASIC from where was it? Sweden, I guess at that time. Mm. And everything was going just great. And that's when I started seeing these ads on YouTube for a real estate project in Chile that was accepting Bitcoin for land. And I thought, wow, that's where all the cool kids are going to be. So <laughs> I decided at that point that I was going to make my way down there. So a few months went by. I, I quit my job and sold a bunch of my stuff and basically just took a couple of suitcases down to Chile and got in on this project that I'd been following for several months and as I was heading down there I was contacted by somebody that was running an entrepreneurship boot camp also in Chile and he said it was populated from people all over the world it was English speaking which was nice so he thought this would be a good idea you know for me to look into and it's something that I could do when I show up in Chile and you know use it as sort of a transitional mechanism you know because it's nice to have a whole bunch of people around that speak your language and from your culture and stuff as you enter into a new country. So I did that. That was a three month, a three month long program, and that's where I met uh, Luke and Lourdes Crowley, who would later become my business partners with Fort Gold. But as soon as that program was finished, um, I headed over to Galt's Gulch, Chile. That's this real estate project whose ads I was seeing. And I showed up and just said, you know what, I don't know what you need done around here, but I'm ready and willing to jump in and do whatever has to be done. So just put me to work. And as, you know, as happenstance would have it, they had just lost their IT guy and they needed somebody to jump in and take care of the computers, somebody to manage the website and social media channels and such. 
So I said, sure, I'll jump in and do that. And over the next three months or so, I would gradually get to find out that this project I was working at was essentially a scam. They were <laughs> selling these subdivisions that didn't legally exist and never could because the area was environmentally protected in such a way that you cannot subdivide land as small as they were telling people. So that was no good. And during that process, I had come up with this idea for sort of a an entry-level option for people that wanted to buy into the community but couldn't afford the expensive lot prices. Sort of a, a you know, basically a frat house, for lack of a better term, you know, a big right. communal house kind of a concept. And so I had already put up a website for that and had it attracted some attention and a few members had bought in. So as the Gulch Gulch project was falling apart, as revelations came out about its you know unsavory nature, I basically just had to refund the members that had bought into my project and just go and find a new place. And in order to do that, I partnered up with the Crowleys, who I had met through this entrepreneurship boot camp. And we just took everything to the drawing board and started exploring Chile, looking for a new spot. So it was a long, interesting process of basically just exploring on the ground because, you know, there's no centralized multiple listing service or anything like that here for real estate. It's kind of a Wild West frontier sort of deal. And we just explored from around Santiago, Viña del Mar area, which, you know, the climate there is like Los Angeles. And then we just gradually kept heading south, which... You know, we're in the Southern Hemisphere, so that would be like traveling north from L.A., climate-wise. Until we eventually got to Valdivia, and the latitude here is like, sort of like Northern California, the start of Oregon. Mm -hmm. So climate-wise, it's, you know, it's very uh, rainforests, cool, rains a lot in the winter, that, that kind of deal. Mm. And once we got down here, we noticed that there's an abundant supply of water, which is great, because... Up by Santiago, there was not much, and water rights are expensive. So we knew that that was a great asset to have, and the the tourism is hopping here. So people are not, you know, weirded out by a bunch of foreigners walking around. You know, there's a lot of tourism activity. There are five different university campuses here in town, so there's foreigners coming in to study all the time. And the town just had a nice vibe to it. Not too big, not too small. Has everything you need without feeling crowded. And we figured, okay, this is this feels like the right general area. So we just got an apartment here in Valdivia, and then we started exploring property opportunities around town. And that was a lengthy process in and of itself. Saw a whole Very bunch nice. of properties that were... Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that scouting consists of driving around, writing numbers down off of signs and calling them up and getting the runaround and, you know, all that manual right. boots on the ground kind of stuff. Yeah, so that took some that time, but we, yeah, for sure. I mean, sometimes you just got to get muddy. <laughs> exactly. So, I've done a number of so times here in the U S too. You got to kind of just get boots on the ground to find the best deal. Sometimes uh, yeah. they're not always advertised. Yeah, for sure. Right. Because by the time it hits, you know, the net, that means that they don't have people close to them that think that it's attractive enough to jump in on quickly. So generally the best deals are ones that don't even have time to make it online. Right. But anyway, we did luck out finally 
and found an amazing property right on the coast overlooking the ocean, you know, maybe half hour drive or so from Valdivia. And there's an interesting story behind it too. Like the landowner, he's an older guy. He's ex Chilean military. And, uh, about 10 years ago, a friend of his had this design for an eco village and she had already done quite a bit of work in terms of like getting the subdivisions approved and doing a master plan. And she even like they put up uh, lamps throughout the property, like street lights. And they had the electrical wiring set up and a water system put in with a tower and water run to each lot. And so they had done a lot of this preliminary work, which is very tedious and annoying to have to do by yourself. But then 10 years ago, after doing all this work, she died and the project just put, was put on the shelf because the landowner didn't know what to do by himself. He didn't have any experience in real estate or anything. So he just put the project on the shelf and it sat there collecting dust until we showed up. And when we explained what we were trying to do, his eyes lit up and he said, wow, that, that's, that's very similar to what we had planned 10 years ago. Why don't you just pick it up and run with it? So he's been great to work with throughout this whole process. We've, you know, we didn't have to buy the entire 100-acre property all in one shot. You know, we could buy lots as we need them to build. So we knew that in order to attract buyers, we needed to really build something that would demonstrate the overall purpose and start attracting the first movers and create kind of a magnet. So we just put up this design and we didn't know how big to make it, how expensive or whatever, you know, cause we were just speculating as to what the market wanted. So we started with this big $5 million crazy design that was all tricked out and luxurious, but it, you know, I mean that, that was in order to allow for a large flood of people to come swarming in with all kinds of crazy cash, which we didn't necessarily think would happen, but we wanted to be prepared at the high end in case there was that kind of a rush. But of course there, there wasn't because what we're offering is, let's just say it appeals to a select niche type of character. You know, It's right. not for everybody. It's, it's for us crazy libertarian types that want to get out of the heavy handed state government controls of the West, you know, and find sort of a, a sanctuary down South where th things are a little more easygoing and freer. So we uh, we scaled down the model a bit. It's, so now it's it's more like a $1 million variation of the same concept. And we just went right to work. And there's a lot of, you know, tedious little steps that have to go in the early phase of any construction project. We had to get, you know, environmental impact studies and soil tests and all these approvals, permits and such. So there's a lot of little things like that. And of course, all this time, I mean, we didn't really have any money to start out with, so we had to put out this vision online and just collect users, collect members as they as they saw it and were enticed by it. So that you know, that's another reason why it didn't necessarily appeal to a large swath of people because it involved more risk than your average conventional real estate development. Because first of all, none of us had any experience. This was our first real estate project and we had no track record this was our first time doing this sort of thing and we had no money we had no backing so it's like all the cards were stacked against us by every rights we should have failed 
<laughs> but there were just enough people just crazy enough and trusting enough to get in on this and share the adventure with us that we were able to just step by step make it work and I mean, to do that, we had to be very transparent, you know, very open throughout the whole process. So rather than collecting complete payments up front, you know, we had to just take percentages, you know, and let people dip their toes in and get comfortable with us and see that with small amounts, we actually follow through with what we say. And so, you know, we'll take 10% first and use that to spend on this, which let's say was the architect's blueprints or something or the soil test studies or all and show them like okay you you trusted us with this much we put it to good use it's spent now now it's time to collect the next you know 15 percent or 20 percent so i mean that's that's not the simplest way of doing things but under the circumstances it was necessary to build trust and i think it's worked out pretty well and so now skip ahead i mean five years since i first got down to chile we finally got the structure up <laughs> it's taken a it's taken a long time. There are a lot of little steps along the way, but we finally have the structure up. The framing should be finished within the next few weeks here. And uh, it feels good to finally see the light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> yeah, it's it's awesome to – because I met you like two years ago, and it's awesome to see um, you go from those renderings you're showing me on your laptop and kind of painting yeah. that picture for me for the future and then actually kind of seeing that stuff go up. It's really inspiring, and it's cool. and. I'm sure you had to jump through all kinds of hoops and it's been a long process uh, ever since you got down to Chile to kind of figure out um, what it is you wanted to do specifically where you wanted to do it and then actually getting it done. Like I, I can't imagine having to do that in a foreign country. So like props to you. Like, totally. Yeah. It's been a heck of a educational experience. I mean, now if, if we were to do it all, all over again, knowing what we know now and having the contacts we now have and everything, it would have been much faster and much cheaper and much easier. But that first run in a foreign country, you've got to make all the contacts first. You've got to figure everything out and navigate the climate and everything. It's, it's interesting. I, I mean, I do recommend it to anyone that's up, up to the challenge, but if you're not, then by, you know, Jesus, just stay away. Cause <laughs> it'll eat. If, if you're not up to some, some pain and some time investment, then it's, it's going to mess you up good. Oh yeah, like I I wouldn't I wouldn't want to jump into that yeah. environment unless I had someone that could provide me um oh, like yeah. a guidance to to navigate some of it like I mean but that's kind of how business goes. I mean a lot of times when you jump into something yeah. that you're not familiar with or like I remember you saying that you didn't really have any background with building property or real estate, right? right? And then yeah. you're jumping yeah. into a foreign environment where you don't really kind of understand everything. There's a different language and different people and different yeah. laws and different climates i mean on top of it all and you know you know and it's yeah it takes a lot to kind of come out on the other side of that and end up where you are now and and most people they might go like 10 years and not even have anything built i've heard some terrible stories so oh yeah you guys Me have too. definitely done pretty well yeah and i mean like i had advice i had people with experience that i could call up and ask questions and things um R rick rule for instance has been fantastic I i've always been able to just call him up with various questions and such but conventional developers have not dealt with a lot of the things that we deal with because our business model is so different like i use rick as the example um he's always told us like, I think what you're doing is really noble, but 
it's really scary because you're not doing things in the in the conventional tried and true fashion. So I have no idea how this is going to work out because there's no like uh, case studies to point back at. <laughs> right. That sounds like so, something Rick would say. <laughs> yeah, totally. So it's it's been fun kind of blazing a new trail, but kind of scary too. So, yeah. Yeah, he, he uh, helps out with the Natural Resource Conference every year in, in Vancouver. I'm going to be back up there, so I'll probably see him. That's, that's where we first met, yeah. Oh, really? Nice. Yeah. yeah. What, the, what uh, year did you Cambridge go? Cambridge House. I went a couple of years, um, I guess 2011, 12, and 13. Oh, man, you just, you just missed me. I think I started going... Um, right when I started college, like 14 or 15 might've been the first year I went. Wow. Oh, just after I left. Okay. <laughs> oh, no. I go every year though. Cause usually, you. yeah, usually Jim shows up, uh, Jim Rickards and Doug Casey shows up and uh, all those guys yeah, are fantastic. Yeah. And then Tika is interesting to listen to. Yeah. He has interesting perspective and mm-hmm. a lot of great guys. I mean, fantastic conference. Anyone that's watching this highly recommend you go check it out. And Vancouver is a beautiful city. Oh yeah, I mean, I lived there for four years and loved it. I mean, it was expensive, and it's hard to to climb out of if you're if you're young and and you you know you don't have much going on yet. Right. Like I have so so many friends that are still back there that they're still stuck in kind of the same jobs that they were before, and but they keep rationalizing their their lack of money with, but I get to wake up to this. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's... I mean. It's tempting. God bless them. It's 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 tempting, sure, but holy crap, it's easy to get stuck there. Yeah, every time I go up there, I'm looking at housing prices. I'm looking at rental prices. I'm like, okay, could I do yeah. this for six months? Could I do this for a year and just enjoy it? And I'm yeah. like, was it smart to do? And then my brain says no. My heart says yes. I'm like, damn it. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess like. I made it work when I was there by getting a bunch of roommates to share a big house with me. So I I put up an ad in Craigslist aimed at the college kids and I got like three Russian music majors all crashing in my place. (laughs) So I was able to make it work financially and we had some great jam sessions, but holy crap, like I suppose in a way that was my first sort of introduction to community building and such, you know, I had to manage the house. So... (laughs) Yes, I guess so. That's true. I mean, obviously, that was a situation for me in college and living in an apartment my last year in college. But yeah, I think a lot of people our age and younger than us are starting to kind of get in that habit where they're living with other people in a community um, around them, whether it's like four people in an apartment or something like Fort Galt. Um, I think that's just a trend starting to happen. It's more affordable for a lot of people. Yeah. Oh, it's definitely a trend that's picking up steam now. Like you look at companies like WeWork, their whole model so far has been co-working spaces, but they're expanding now to building entire communities. Right. And there's a ton of money flowing into that. So it's definitely on the uptrend. And like our generation, especially generally like our friends, they're not interested in buying property, you know, for the most part, they just want to travel around and take selfies in front of cool stuff. (laughs) Yeah, there was a co-working space in, um, in Bend, Oregon, kind of where I live. Um, And there's a couple of them. I just stumbled across them because I didn't really, I never really grew up around co-working spaces. And when I was in college, I didn't see them a whole lot, but they're popping up everywhere now. And I went in and talked to some people at one of them and 
it's highly affordable. You can rent a desk for like 50, bucks a month and get all these services. Oh, yeah. and get, and where I live, you get free beer, you get free coffee, you get uh, free printing services. And I'm like, it's kind of nice for someone that doesn't have a lot of money that's an entrepreneur. Oh, and yeah. Then, it's and then fantastic. they had, and they were operating as an incubator for individuals yep. that were starting up. I'm like, it's a little mini Fort Galtz. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Interesting. No, and like, it's it's funny because we thought that that culture was probably permeating down here too because we work is also opening up or actually they already did open up a huge like 11 floor facility in Santiago so a friend of mine here in Valdivia did go ahead and open up a co-work last winter and it did not do well um that culture has not really come down here yet um, right for all for all the freedoms that are in Chile economically and legally there's there's not much of a entrepreneurship culture like that's that's not an option that kids are told about really there's like street hustling and stuff but in terms of like starting your own business strictly in in the private sector that's really not much of a thing there's a lot of business like there is a co-work here in town for instance that has been operating for a few years but we know somebody who worked there and it turns out that it's really just sort of a scheme to collect a bunch of grants from the state and that seems to be a common trend here where people will just open businesses to have a business to qualify for grants and a whole bunch of these little welfare state programs right so that's that's not like real entrepreneurship right? no it's, it's not i i think chile system is chile still offering that um that startup startup chile? thing yeah yeah startup chile yeah, there's the Startup Chile program, but again, that's that's like a state-funded uh, program for PR purposes. It's not creating genuine businesses for the most part. There might right. be a few that have come out of it, but mo- like they'll throw money at any project essentially, and it's all f- for show. Like there's a whole bunch of really silly ideas that get funding that don't go anywhere. It's just people come down to Chile, they pitch their idea, they get into this six-month program or whatever, and they get set up with this little, uh, you know, maybe $30,000 or so to keep them living during the program, so it looks cool. Right. But in, in terms of, like, valuable outcomes, I'm not seeing much from it. It, it sounds like a bureaucratic thing. It sounds like someone pushed yeah. legislation on it so someone could take advantage of the system in that situation. Right. That's my guess. So that's that's part of what's driving us is like we just want to demonstrate like what a real business environment looks like. So one that's independent of state incentives and state programs. Like we're not taking money from the government in any way. This is strictly a private effort and we want to show what that sort of environment looks like and demonstrate to locals, whether it's kids or whoever, like this is a real option. Like you you can come here and hang out with people that are starting up their own businesses and building apps and stuff and see how it works, you know, see what that kind of life looks like and, and realize that you can do it too. Right. And it's probably the best way to do it. Probably the only way to do it. I mean, you shouldn't rely on the government because they don't know how to run a business, let alone run their own government. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. Like once upon a time, you know, kids would apprentice under a master and spend years learning a, a craft or a, a trade of some kind. And so with 
little microcosm community type things like Fort Galt or even these co-work spaces like you're you're talking about, there's that opportunity for more seasoned people that have been around for a while that have skills and, and such to collaborate with younger people that are looking for some guidance and maybe they have fresh ideas to contribute and stuff too. So that's something great that I think has come out of Fort Galt is that we didn't just appeal to one age group or one specific demographic. We've got people of all ages from all sorts of backgrounds here. And I'm really seeing a lot of opportunity for creative collaboration. And once that recipe is put together and the melting pot is fired up, I mean, you can't even predict what's going to come out of it. So I'm just kind of here excited, waiting to see what pops, you know. Oh, I'd be, if I were you, I'd be so anxious after all this time and then seeing the building yeah. go up, I'd be jumping up and down like, <laughs> yeah, for oh sure. Goodness. And like now that, now that we've gone through the process once, we know like how to do it right. <laughs> so mm -hmm. there's so many things that we know how to cut costs and how to save time and things. So all future buildings that we're doing, like I'm already starting one close to it, that'll be specifically it for incubating projects you know because i have a few that i want to get done but there's a lack of talent here so i need to attract some coders and such and but i mean all things that we build going forwards we have builders here now like one guy came down from from canada and bought one of our lots and he started his own construction company so he's already building a house right now for the purposes of resale and so there's there's that basic level of in infrastructure like already set up here. So people that do want to come down and do something, it's a lot easier for them now that we've done most of the groundwork. Right. No, that's awesome. It's awesome to see that people are taking some notice and are coming down from different places and you got quite the diversity of uh, wealth coming in and people with similar ideas that are libertarian and are all kind of crazy like we are. <laughs> it's awesome. It's, yeah. it's, it's cool to see. Do you... So, I mean, I know there are other communities that are kind of communities, kind of projects similar to Fort Galt. Do you see yourself having competition with them or being something that's kind of mutually no. beneficial? It's definitely mutually beneficial. Like there, there's so few of them at this point and they're, they're spread out so much and there's, they're, uh, different enough that they're not really dir directly competing with each other. They're, they're kind of playing in the same space, but together we all kind of raise awareness that this sort of thing even exists, you know, mm -hmm. like Pepsi, Pepsi and Coke are actually pretty good for e each other, you know, like, because you know that if you go into a restaurant and maybe you want Coke, but they don't have it, but Pepsi's there, you know, okay, well, fine. I know that's basically the same shit. It's, right. <laughs> I mean, just, just raising awareness that this thing called cola exists and that it's available. That's something that they both help each other on. So we're kind of doing that for e each other. Like someone might not particularly like this part of the world. Like maybe they don't want to be in Latin America. Maybe they don't want to be uh, in a rainy climate, for instance. Like it rains half of the year here. So sure. some of our members, I know, they just prefer to be here for the summer and, you know, maybe they'll go somewhere else for the other half of the year. So like maybe you prefer Norway. And if you're that kind of person, you'll go to Norway because there's an option there that's kind of similar to us. Or if you want to go and check out Lieberland in the middle of Europe, that, that that's an option too. Or there's a, a group of people in Mexico that have gathered and there's 
I mean, I, I hear that's kind of fragmenting right now. So mm-hmm. some of them are mo- moving over from Acapulco to San Miguel, I think. Mm-hmm. But anyway, there's like little pockets. And there's, of course, the Free State Project up in North uh, New Hampshire. That's in the Northeast U.S. So for people that prefer that part of the world, that's an option too. But I mean, mostly what we're trying to do is to just show that this can be replicated wherever you want. You know, it's like once we've kind of done the basics, we can show like what worked and what what didn't and explain why and then provide sort of a template that can be roughly followed wherever you happen to be. Right. And yeah, it could definitely be replicated anywhere. And um, I'm starting to see that a lot just in general um, all over the world. But I think where is a big part of that too, because I mean, yeah, you could do the same thing in the U.S. There's a lot of places in the U.S. that might be mm-hmm. a good fit for something like that. Um, definitely like Wyoming and certain places and uh, Colorado oh, yeah. and even down in Nevada in some areas. But, I mean, depending on your jurisdiction where you are, if there was global financial crash or if there right. was um, World War III um, or some something that would be just terrible. I mean, it's more likely that's going to happen in the U.S. or in a major first world country or something like that. So having a place in in Chile is actually not such a bad um, alternative location for all these yeah. different libertarian uh, societies that are popping up. And I think where and like the location, 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 <laughs> I think it's just very important in terms of the libertarian values that I think a lot of us are upholding and um that's individual sovereignty that we're all kind of searching for. Yeah. Um, I think you got to be careful what location specifically you put it in. Yeah. And I mean, like in broad strokes, I have my, my whole life planned out, but I was asking myself, like, where would I want my home base to be where I can always fall back to, you know, like if, if I'm out in the world doing something crazy and things go south, like I need a fallback position that's, that's safe and, and chill and everything. So I thought, okay, well, Chile makes sense for that. So I should start there, you know, do that well first and then branch out. Cause like down here in the Southern hemisphere, I mean, the way that weather patterns work, if there was ever some, you know, catastrophic world war type situation or whatever, I mean, the damage and the fallout and everything would be mostly contained to the Northern hemisphere. Right. So from a pragmatic standpoint like that, it makes sense to have somewhere tucked away down on the other side of the ball, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's true. And I don't think a lot of people are looking to bomb Valdivia. So I think it's... That's just it. There, there's there's no targets down here. so It's, it's fairly safe. So it's pretty... Yeah, it's... And, it's, and just the climate, the c- culture is very laid back down here. Like... Doing something like this up by Santiago, where there's 6 million people, would be a lot more difficult because they take the rules more seriously. But down here, it's very sparsely populated. It's, you know, kind of like Canada, where I originally came from. It's sparsely populated, so people are a lot more lenient and and flexible when it comes to how rules are actually enforced. So, like, I mean, Technically speaking, there are a whole bunch of rules that you have to carefully follow when you're developing something. Mm -hmm. But practically speaking, if you're out in a rural area down here in the south, as long as you're not bothering anyone, nobody cares. You you just do whatever you want, you know. 
have you thought about i know it's really early and you're just getting the building up and everything but have you thought about in the future expanding it into maybe a prime location in canada as well oh absolutely i mean eventually i want to see locations like this all over the world network together to be a sort of decentralized country you know like we're used to thinking of countries as being geographical things like single masses of land but there's no reason in this day and age why that has to be the case like you could subscribe to a governance model the way that you subscribe to any other service whether it's life insurance or you know whatever so if we have sort of a private club essentially you know kind of like how the freemasons you know they have lodges in basically every town right you know they're all decentralized each lodge operates independently but they have a common bond they're united by principles and all that sort of thing so i see us having sort of the digital ages version of that you know what you could do at some point you could uh you could create a membership uh for the people that are obviously by the membership and you could tokenize it or you could put a smart contract around yep. it so they could take it anywhere they want in the world that there's a Fort Galt type location. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. There's a lot of cool things you can do with it for sure. And, and I like the rain. So, I mean, that's not too bad. Of an so area. do I. <laughs> <laughs> You're, um, yeah. it must wash away any pollution in the area. So the air has got to be pretty clean, huh? Right on the coast and it depends where exactly where if you're at Fort Gulf, then yeah, it is very clean because you have the ocean right there and we're surrounded by rainforest. We're surrounded by protected parkland. So no one's going to build next to us in Valdivia though, in the middle of winter, it's not that clean because everyone burns wood. So mm -hmm. the air can get smoky. Yeah. But we're a half hour outside of town. So that smoke just stays where it is. <laughs> yeah. We have a lot of people where we are at that, that burn um, this time of year when it's still wet and yeah. the sun's coming out yeah. um, for farming purposes. But um, right. we, we also burn a lot of underbrush and stuff like that because in the summer we get terrible forest fires that just engulf um, our oh, central yeah. Oregon and our cities. Like, cause um, my it's my city sits down in this like a bowl because we have rim rock that goes all around our our town and a rim rock that goes quite a ways around central Oregon and then we have the um, the Cascade Mountain Range and everything that kind of goes around it so all the smoke it like sits in this giant bowl and it's terrible. Um, last couple of years we've um, had tons and tons of forest fires just that just really don't make any sense. I know it's been hot but. It's been like like eighty hot, not like a hundred and ten hot. And these forest fires popping up all over the place. Some people think the Native Americans are starting forest fires to get jobs, and um, some yeah. some people think that it's a government program or state program to. I don't know. It's There's both. some crazy stuff. <laughs> I think it's a little bit of everything. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I come from the middle of Saskatchewan and mm -hmm. that same kind of deal was going on there too. I mean, my, my dad would go up and fight fires sometimes. And that was a, a pretty well-known uh, truism up there. Like the natives in the area would make quite a bit of money just fighting fires. And if the fires ever got put out, they would just start a new one. So right. <laughs> job security, you know? Yeah, it is kind of job security in a way. I mean, terrible, but uh, oh well. Yeah. I mean, like growing up in Saskatchewan actually formed a lot of, I guess, what would eventually lead to Fort Galt in a weird yeah. way. Like 
growing up on farms, you're spread out and you're not in everyone's face, you know, so you actually put in the effort to reach out and, and establish and maintain your, your bonds with your neighbors. And when, when something needs to get done in the community, I mean, we never called the government. <laughs> we didn't call cops. We didn't call firefighters or anything like that. Like there actually was one year when the straw bales in our yard caught fire and they could have burned the whole farm down. <laughs> had, had we just called the fire department, we would have been totally screwed because they're, you know, they take about an hour to actually muster and get together and then drive down, you know, so... But fortunately, our neighbors saw the smoke and they rallied a bunch of other neighbors together, came on over and just put the fire out. So, I mean, that's that's just how stuff got done. And if if, you know, maybe we needed to build a road to access a field or something, we you know, you, you don't call the government, and say, please build me a, ro a road kind, sir. You know, you, yeah. you call up the neighbors who are who are affected by it and who would benefit by it. And you say, hey, how about we all just get together tomorrow and build a road? And that's what that's how it worked. So then moving to Vancouver, it was a very different experience because all of a sudden now I'm packed in a shoebox, you know, termite situation where you're pressed up against all these other strangers. So now instead of trying to reach out and, and foster bonds, you're, you're trying to put up blinds and, and fences and walls and tr just try to get some damn privacy, you know. So <laughs> it's like I totally get why this is a foreign concept and seems kind of weird to most people because it's just not how most people are raised or what they've experienced. But because I've tasted it and I know how it can work, I, I'm kind of hell-bent on reproducing it in a more practical sense. Right. You know, what's kind of sad is that I think agrarian society in general is starting to become a real rarity in the world, especially as people start flocking mm -hmm. towards cities and socialist ideals are starting to take over in a lot of places. Um, yeah. A lot of individuality is getting squashed. Um, and really, you can see it in the United States, um, depending on where you live. But I mean... Like a hundred years ago, mm -hmm. we used to be like 80% agrarian society. Everyone had their own farm. Everyone was growing their own food. And nowadays, I mean, you can't grow anything in your backyard without yeah. having to deal with some local ordinance. And it's um, it's getting terrible. Yeah. And they're forcing people in the cities and they're forcing these conditions. And the state's starting to control food now and um, to control certain products and services. And it's kind of scary. Yeah. And I mean, from a economic standpoint the division of labor and such you know says that specialization is a great thing we can all focus our energies on developing a particular skill set a particular talent and get really good at it and then just trade our surplus for whatever we're lacking and that's all well and good that's absolutely true but the trade-off is that if we if, if if we get too good at specialization then we become helpless in all other aspects so we end up with a whole bunch of people who are specialized in one thing and are helpless in all others. And so they feel that they are at the mercy of the state and that they need the state because they feel like they're weak and that they can't survive in any other context. Yeah, agreed. So hopefully we can kind of roll that back a bit and find that happy medium where we're specialized enough to be good at something and, and master a particular craft or, or trade, but also still retain general competence so that we're actually able to hold our own and actually be responsible for ourselves. Yeah. A lot of these trade skills and um, knowledge that's been lost over many, many decades um, as technology has kind of made certain things obsolete. Like you don't necessarily need someone to be sewing shirts all day or sewing pants all day. Right. 
I mean, you have machines that can do that. I mean, there's a lot of skills just in yeah. general in, in the market that have completely been lost. And a lot of people have been, um, in the first world, especially very, um, pampered by technology and those, yeah, a lot of those skills are gone. It's really hard to go back to that because there's not a whole lot of people that know that inside and out that can pass it on, um, or to mm-hmm. jumpstart that again, it's almost becoming a lost skill in a lot of ways. And I think what we're starting to see with peer to peer, uh, peer to peer technology and peer to peer business and, um, blockchain creating this buffer against centralization by creating decentralization, I think it's going to really, um, incentivize people to pick up the trade skills that they're good at, um, to create a brand around it to create, um, their own business around specifically what they're good at, because there's not a lot of people that know how to do certain things in farming. But if there are a couple people that do, mm-hmm. then they can make that part of their brand. They can sell it and then eventually teach people going forward in the future. I just think peer to peer stuff is really going to help bring some of that back. Oh yeah. Assuming that we start moving in some places to a decentralized model. So, I mean, I think it's a good buffer yeah. though. And I mean, we're at this, we're at this, point in history that never existed before where all of a sudden our needs are all met wow isn't that awesome (laughs) yeah but like from an economics and society structure point of view like so many of the occupations that everyone took for granted and thought was just perfectly normal was providing for our basic needs farmers needed to provide food because we need freaking food to live, you know, and like builders need to build houses and, you know, providing our basic needs was a huge part of the economy. It's what people learned how to do, but we're getting to the point now where that's mostly automated and that the processes of delivering those things have been refined and perfected so much that now it's like, you don't have to do that stuff. You can think about doing what you want to do, what you like to do in such a way that only you can do it so that people actually like it and want to buy it. So there's there's a lot of like personal branding now and such where like anyone right now listening to this, like if you want, like if you're stuck in a job that you don't find fulfilling or, or whatever, and you feel kind of trapped in your geographic location, but by your, your job, you can start an online business right now. Just find a product, anything, go on AliExpress, right? Where you can find stuff from China. It's like basically a Chinese version of Amazon. You can find anything you want there, super cheap. And you can build a little online store using a platform like Shopify and just put your own personal spin on it. You know, create your own logo, make your own brand, put your personality on it, make videos using yourself, telling your story about how you use the product, why you like it fit it into a story. Maybe you travel with it. You, you can start like a travel journal showing how you use it in your daily life or whatever. I, I don't know. I'm not telling you how to live, but you just by putting your own personality into a product that's already being sold everywhere else, you can easily then market that on Facebook using Facebook ads or through Google or however you want through Instagram influencers or and you can do perfectly well at that. You can create an online income that can then free you from being stuck to a particular spot. That'll allow you to travel, find somewhere cheap, cheaper to live, somewhere more interesting. You can wander around and find a spot that really suits you. I mean, there's, there's just so many more tools available to us. 
that all of the old excuses kind of don't work now. Like if you're stuck, if, if you're, if you're like broke in your hometown that you've never left and stuff, that's all on you. Like, right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I, that's what I was born into and it wasn't good enough for me. So I fucking left. Like, I'm sorry, but like oh, nobody has that excuse. Good. You can do it. Any, anybody can do it. I had zero friends in Vancouver. I didn't know anybody, no support. I had $8 in my back pocket. I mean, there's no excuse. You can just pick up and move anywhere you want, start fresh, and just find your way. You know? Yeah, there are so many opportunities in the world created by technology nowadays. I think it's almost impossible, even if you don't have money, with all the free services that are out there and the ways that you can brand yourself and create business yeah. or whatever you need to do to, to make it in the world or to kind of start inching towards your goal. I mean, there's just all the technology and the mm. opportunity. There's almost no excuse nowadays, especially in first world, second world countries. And yeah. Yeah, it's well, and like I, I mentioned earlier, the Freemasons model, like the whole reason they set up the way they did, is because they all understood that you should have universally applicable and valuable skills. So, stonemasons, carpenters, things like that, trades that they could take with them, skill sets that they could take with them and find work no matter where they were. They knew that all they had to do was show up in a strange town, find the local lodge, and once they got to the local lodge, they would have friends and, and brothers there waiting to hook them up with work and show them where all the hot spots were, help help them find clients. You know, they had a support system. It was basically a, a secular church. Right. You know, churches are very good at this. This is, I think, why so many people join churches, <laughs> honestly. I have I have several friends who I think if it weren't for the community social aspects or for the, the support aspect, they probably wouldn't even bother. But they do that very well, and it's very valuable from that perspective. And so Fort Galt is kind of trying to be like that. It's It's like providing the same sort of value that a church system would, you know, that that social structure that can be re relied on and you know it's there waiting for you if you're traveling. And so now in this age, instead of masonry or carpentry, although, you know, those are still valuable skills, now we have things like coding. You know, like if you learn basic coding and you stumble around figuring out HTML and CSS and what, like you can learn all of this stuff online for free. You know, there's there's courses that you can download through torrents or even if you want to pay a few bucks, you can use things like Coursera, you know, right. Skillshare, and you can you can learn and and then specialize in any branch of coding that piques your interest. Like if you suddenly decide that you like video games or something, you can kind of decide to specialize in that aspect. Or and then there are there are companies that will hire people all over the world. Like um, names don't come to mind at at the moment, but there's like uh, freelance platforms too. Like um, uh, Upwork, you know, like I have a friend here in town who just does freelance coding. Yeah, through Fiverr. Fiverr's another one, too. Fiverr's at the cheap end. Yeah. If you want to get your toes wet and just screw around a bit, you. It's very helpful, though. I'll, I'll tell you what, it's very helpful for like simple stuff you need. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It, it's, it's helpful for people who are starting a business. Like, for instance, if you're doing like what I mentioned earlier, starting an online store or something like that, and you just need something simple done, like a logo or maybe some, some sales copy written or something like that, Fiverr is great for that. Mm -hmm. Buyer, right. buyer beware though. You generally get what you pay for. So 
I would recommend that as like an entry level option and then you can upgrade later. But exactly. Upwork is great. Like I've been tinkering with a theme song here for some of the Fort Galt videos that are upcoming. And nice. for one spot, I needed a producer. For another spot, we needed a cellist. For both of those, I just jumped on Upwork and found a couple of people in Russia and Ukraine, and they got exactly what I did, what I needed done within a couple of days and very reasonable cost. Um, for the Fort Galt website, we we needed that um, interactive map, you know, so that you can mouse over the lots on on the land and see what the, the prices are and that sort of thing. I, I didn't know how to do that, so I jumped on Upwork and found somebody in Ukraine who's really good at it. So he just whipped up the code for me, sent it over. I paid him, I think it was like $100 or something. And it was the most painless hiring process I've ever experienced. So stuff like that is fantastic. Oh, I know. Peer-to-peer, -peer, man. Peer-to-peer -peer is going to be a very, yeah. very big deal. And you can already tell, I mean, and avoiding the whole hassle and all the middlemen and everything and going directly from uh, customer to business or to professional to clients. It's super helpful, especially on these platforms like Upwork and Fiverr, and then, yeah. um, and then all the free to really low cost quality education on oh, yeah. um, Coursera and websites like that, and mm -hmm. you can get certifications. And I'm telling people all the time, and just with blockchain specifically, if you know how to code and you take a course and learn how to build smart contracts on the Ethereum blockchain in the U.S., you can get a six figure job for that skill. Right. And you don't need college for that skill. And it's ridiculous. Right. And I've looked at the statistics and how fast it's growing. Um, it's one of the, it's the highest paid job in tech ahead of TensorFlow for AI, which is a big deal in the US. Mm. There's just nobody out there that knows how to do any of this yet. So there's yeah. massive demands and very little supply. Yeah. And so I tell everyone that I know if I could do one thing, if I could change one thing about my college experience, I would have taken coding class after coding class. I would have been a computer science major. Yeah. And I would have jumped on to learning about smart contracts earlier, how to build on blockchains. Mm -hmm. And I'd start a business Definitely. more so around that. Yep. And I might do that in the future too, but I'd rather outsource the work because it's just smarter. But yeah. at the same time, those skills are so valuable, especially in tech too. Oh yeah, like coding is just well, and incredibly like invaluable. With this Fort Galt project, it you know just simple necessity drove us to learn certain skills that we wouldn't have otherwise even thought of learning. Like in order to share the vision of what it was we were trying to do, we had to show it visually somehow. So we had to learn how to use three uh, D modeling software and animation software and stuff like that. And that I have found to be extremely useful. In fact, my business partner, Luke here, he just really ran with SketchUp and he got really good at it. And he took those skills back to n New York to his, his job at the construction company. And he showed his boss like, hey, I'm, I'm great at SketchUp now, you know, like our company should be using this more. And so he got kicked upstairs and he's doing that full time now. So it's... Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's a great skill set to have because it's something, like I said earlier, that you can take with you. You know, it's, it's it, it doesn't lock you down to any geographic spot. You can you can wander around and you've got those skills with you. And heck, for doing stuff like we're doing with Fort Gold, it's crazy useful. Like 
the project that I'm working on the side here is a pair of, of buildings and I had to really get a lot better at SketchUp too because holy crap, it just makes everything so much easier. It's so precise and easy to use and it's transferable. You can swap the files from program to program very easily. It makes it a whole lot easier. Like even if you're not doing the actual architectural blueprints, like the official ones that get stamped and actually used, it still helps to be able to do all of the modeling first so that you can bring that to the architect and make his job so much easier. Right. Yeah. It totally helps the architect. It totally helps you get an idea of exactly what you're trying to get out of it. It's better than a, a blueprint, which is a lot of ways really hard to like visualize. Yeah. Um, and I mean, just in general, like those skills are fantastic. And I learn a lot of different little skills all the time playing around on these Ethereum dApps. Like I'm in crypto voxels with a number of people all the time. So we're building out different projects um, for VR um, in my spare time. And we have to use voxels and mm. dot box files all the time right. for like our imports and exports. And we can take. Uh, uh, I forgot what the file names are called, but for like 3D printing and for um, 3D rendering and stuff like that, you can convert those back and forth yeah. between voxel files. Um, and that skill for me has been really helpful because then I can get um, all kinds of different models into a voxelized world and then I can take voxelized models in a world and pull it out and put it um, and generate a... 3d printable version and then i can go get it 3d printed or i can put it in a model and yep. then i can mock it up um and for advertising purposes it's just so helpful to know these little skills and um you just don't learn this in school yeah and like e even if you don't enjoy it enough to want to specialize in it and become the master at it it's still useful to have a general understanding of it so that when you need to hire someone that is a specialist, you're at least competent enough to, to recognize what a skilled person looks like and what good work looks like, you know? Um, I got to get to a meeting oh, yeah. in a little bit. Um, so I'm going to kind of wrap it up. Yeah, totally. Um, but uh, to close it, is there anything that you wanted to talk about really quickly or put out there into the ether, no puns intended, um, any updates on what you're doing or what Fort Gold is doing? Oh, well, we're just at this point now where the structure's finished within the next week or two weeks or whatever here, and then it's starting to work indoors. We'll be working throughout the winter on the interior. So there are still a few rooms available. If anyone's interested in getting in on something like this, pay us a visit, fortgalt.com, F-O-R-T-G-A-L-T.com. Awesome. Dude, it was awesome having you on. It's great talking and kind of going off on all this stuff it's it's always fun uh chatting up with you man yeah you too drop me a line anytime cool yeah man thanks for coming on i appreciate it right on no problem Just take care